I mean, I think you really have to distill things down to first principles, right? So it's like, what what is the objective, like irrefutable start of this issue, right? And then you kind of dissect from there, quite frankly, like where did we zig, where we should have zagged, but you really have to start at the core to kind of understand, wow, like our CPAs are rising through the roof. Like, what's the creative like? Do we feel like we have the right hooks? Like there's just so many things that people just want to default and kind of like broad brushstroke statements to say like, oh, X is like going out of control and we don't know why. I'm like, is that actually true? So I think for us, like before we make kind of those massive jumps in logic, it's well, before we get to that conclusion, again, can we dissect these issues into smaller pieces to better understand, is there something that's actually in our control that we can adjust, that we can maneuver, that we can manipulate to see if we can actually get to a better outcome. Welcome to Ad Creative, a new show from Pencil about the unexpected ideas that have changed the game for DDC founders and operators with a focus on actionable takeaways. I'm Chase Moseni. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're joined by Matt Mullinex, co-founder and CEO of Huron. I have it in my bathroom. I hope you do too. We talk about his personal skin journey and how that affected his desire to found this company, how he uses first principles to solve problems, and how building a brand and making a sustainable company are so imperative in today's market. Before we jump into the rest of the show with Matt, I wanted to share a little offer that we've cooked up exclusively for our podcast listeners. That's 15% off your first year of any paying plan on Pencil with code AC15. Pencil exists to help brands scale their creative production so that they can get to the business of testing more ads and finding new customers. We hope that this offer can help you do that. Now onto the show. We're really excited for you to learn from Matt. Enjoy. Really happy to have Matt Molinax, co-founder and CEO of Huron, which I just got some deodorant in the mail today, actually. So super pumped on that. Really happy to have you here, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Chase. Thanks for having me. Excited to chat. Yeah, so am I. So am I. So I um I always start this off trying to hear a little bit about the old CV, but I, I think one of the fun ones I really liked when I was researching you was you played football at Brown. And so I would love to know what position you played and, and has that affected any of the way you run your business and think about any of this stuff before we kind of dive into the details? Yeah, that was uh that was eons ago, it feels like. But Spent four years at Brown on the football team, which was amazing. I played defensive back, which was kind of an interesting transition for me because I grew up playing wide receiver. Uh, so never had to tackle anyone for decades. Uh, so picking that up at age 18 wasn't the most enjoyable skill set to have to acquire. Uh, but it was an awesome experience. We actually won an Ivy League championship my sophomore year. So it was really cool. But it definitely kind of like paves the way there's there's a little bit of kind of like the athlete's mentality in the startup culture which is just constantly pushing constantly getting better learning from mistakes training honestly like a b testing with yourself techniques that work well for you techniques that don't work so well for you you're constantly kind of curating your own optimized workflow if you will so i think there's a, a lot of transferable skill sets that one can apply from not even college athletics but just athletics in general into the the early stage workforce. Yeah, that's so, it's a really funny one. I, I talk to people a lot about football and, you know, there's obviously all the kind of negative stuff around the sport specifically with contact and, and head injuries. I also see like, there's no other team sport like it that can teach a person how to share. Everything else is kind of the individual and then it folds into a team. 
It's like if you're not doing everything perfect at one time, like, you know, a startup, obviously there's chaos within the play, but you have to work together in Congress to make things happen. Same thing kind of, I'm sure you guys ship new products or new landing pages or new experiences for customers. And it is a concerted effort for the entire team to be able to deliver on that. Totally. Definitely more of a team sport than an individual sport. Um, growing up, I ran track as well, which was kind of the the opposite side of the spectrum where it's literally kind of runner against runner and you can talk all the smack you want, but when the gun goes off, like you find out really quickly who's faster. Yeah. So definitely kind of a, a counter example there, but yeah, to your point, I mean, we, we're a small team of five, so we're kind of all touching everything all the time. And you have to work uh, as a cohesive unit to whether it's bringing products to market, um, even get creative into the ecosystem for paid channels or thinking about, you know, shipping products to Amazon. Like there's constantly at least two folks on our team kind of touching every work scope and work stream. So, you know, th- there has to be this collaborative effort to, uh, to get to where we want to be. Well, that's great. So I want to dive in here. My first always port of call is you were working at Nike and then you went to grad school at Stanford. And I'm curious, did you hatch the idea for Huron there or had it been something that had been on your mind and kind of what gave you that idea specifically to, to go down that path? Yeah, so slightly different order of operations there. So went to grad school, then did my summer internship at Nike. Um, so spent 10 weeks in, in Beaverton, which was an awesome experience. But kind of predating grad school, I had spent time as an early stage employee at Bonobos. So was the sixth employee there, worked there for a number of years, then moved to Chicago, got into the, the finance sector. So spent three years as an investment banker at UBS and the M&A group, and then went to a consumer private equity fund where we kind of invested in early stage direct to consumer brands, which were in 2012 called e-commerce brands. There were no acronyms, right? So got kind of a, a good uh, professional exposure to a broad range of categories. And for me, that was kind of my first initial foray into beauty and personal care. We looked at a bunch of brands that were largely targeting the female consumer, so more kind of like traditional beauty and cosmetics brands. And for me, it was such an eye-opening experience. Just thought amazing packaging, amazing products, tremendous founders, uh, a really sticky category. And I thought that there was very few, if any, analogs targeting the male consumer, right? So for me, that was always kind of like an interesting professional affinity towards the category because I thought there was a lot of white space. Uh, So that was always kind of like the professional angle. The personal angle for me was I was just the kid that grew up with bad skin, right? So whether I was like ripping off on and off football helmets all the time or running from AAU basketball game to track meet, like... I felt I was a, a very healthy person who prioritized health and fitness, wellness, diet, et cetera. But my skin didn't really reflect that. And as a, a teenager into the 20s, into honestly my late 20s, like it kind of weighs on you mentally, right? Because you feel like, are people looking looking to me or are people looking at me? And I think the latter becomes like definitely uh, a point of distinction. And a story that I often tell uh, while I was working in private equity, I actually had a boss one day say, hey, we can't really take you to any more meetings like until you fix like this, meaning like your face, which was not uh, a jolt of self-confidence um, in any way, shape or form. Uh, so I think for me, it was always, you know, not only a professional interest of how do you kind of bring this kind of amazing quality level of product, um, but also just kind of like educational opportunities to the male consumer. But there was also a lot of personal backstory, 
And I think for me, that's what makes this journey uh, much more intimate is because for me, like I know exactly who we're targeting, exactly who we're talking to, exactly who we're helping um, because I was that guy. And I think if you're kind of a founder thinking about being a founder, you know, if you're able to craft that true one to one relationship, kind of you are your own consumer. I think it really creates a leg up because you just you understand the friction, you understand the pain points. You know, yes, the margin's strong. Yes, the repeat behavior is really strong. But to really know the ins and outs of your consumer because you are that person, I think becomes really, really special. You know, one of the really incredible through lines across all of these conversations I've been able to have is you find a few things. One is um, like a passion and dedication, almost like a obsession with the purpose. Um, so similar to what you were just sharing right now. And it comes from like that deep seated, hey, we have to solve this problem. We have to solve it in the most unique and specific way. I think the other one is an obsession with audience. This is not talked about enough. And uh, I think, you know, it's been homogenized or, or like made, like everyone says, okay, you're targeting a broad audience. We have to do that. But really, we know who we're trying to niche down on and like the ability to communicate that in a creative way whether using tools or, or you're just, you know, doing straight up copy or, or putting it on your packaging is, I think, one of the moats of a business um, because it's one of the few places you can uniquely be yourself that stands out. So, for instance, I know on, on Twitter, um, Ron Shaw, the uh, CEO of Avi, mentioned that little unique thing that you guys did on the, uh, on the packaging about what, how much you should be using. And it's usually either not mentioned or it's on the back in 0.3 font. Um, so you're never gonna you're never gonna see how to use it, and it's, it is it's incredibly useful. And so it's funny. I did I, I used it today in the shower. I used the face wash, and uh, I, I did I think I did like a half dollar. I squeezed too hard and did a half dollar. I was like, oh shit, I messed it up. So I, I think it's very very important what you're saying. You know that breadcrumb was kind of like an interesting thing that emerged in kind of the early creative packaging design conversations. As again, just like a way to help this consumer, right? It's like, I'm not sure how much to use. I don't want to be heavy handed. Maybe this product is a few dollars more expensive than what I'm accustomed to using, but you don't actually need to use a ton because our products are super concentrated, right? So again, it's more of a educational opportunity. It's more of a way to build a trust element versus saying like, hey, use a ton of this because then you'll come back to us quicker, right? It, it, it's a brand decision around how can we continue to help this consum this customer at really every decision tree moment and really kind of help craft whether it's new routine, whether it's switching a product, but to, to make the category, which historically has been a little awkward to talk about, quite frankly, feel like it's a little bit more safe and feel like you you have a better understanding or grasp of the products you're using and why the, why you're using them. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I did this the other day. I asked some some friends in one of my my group chats, you know, what what beauty products do they use? It was ahead of this call actually when we before we rescheduled. And there's like of the 12 of us, there's like three people who had like a, a stack where they could tell you like right away, like their own beauty stack. And everyone else is kind of like, I use soap or I use this or I use that. My wife has given me something like this, or I, I don't really have kind of a like a prescription for kind of what I need to be using and how I need to be thinking. So I asked them like, well, why don't you use products that are spe specified for men? I'm like, well, you know, I don't know, man. I'm like, dude, there are so many products out there that are very specifically for men. So I guess where I'm, I'm coming from and my question where this dovetails into the question is, 
what was the initial user research? Because you obviously come from a personal story. You have a, a way in, but then there's also the, hey, I have a way in, but like, is it one to one or is it, can I do one to many? And obviously, you know that there are other people like you, but you need to do some user research. And I would be fascinated to know how, what you've learned since you, when, before you started and then since you've started about how your brand affects people's lives. Yeah, really good question. And I think just uh, taking a step back on the product side, I mean, I certainly had relatability uh, to folks who were maybe struggling with personal care issues, whether it's thinning hair or body odor or acne. Um, I mean, there's a ton. Uh, but I didn't really know much about the X's and O's of how to make a product, right? Like that, that was not my experience or background. Very serendipitously, I was introduced to my co-founder, Matt, coincidentally also named Matt. Um, he used to run product development and corporate innovation at Estee Lauder. So he is like the product guru, right? So much so that in 2009, he actually wrote like a 25-page white paper on the gender differences of skin between men and women. It's like crazy in the weeds. And when people talk about like, oh, like men's skin is different. Like it's kind of funny because it's all traced back to that research paper. So he he is our, our product guru. And for us, you know, we've always believed that like, yes, we are going to create a brand that is much more relatable and copy and approach and tonality, aesthetic, et cetera. But the products have to be great and not like an eight out of 10 or a nine out of 10, but like a 12 out of 10. And that's why we've been so intentional around the products that we do push to market. This is not a lipstick on a pig exercise. It's like, oh, cool. The unboxing is really nice. Or like the website's really fun and whimsical. This is a, you need to try this product um, and here are the benefits. And like, here's what you should expect from using this product. But when the products actually come, can we still exceed expectations? And we recently did like a word cloud um, on a survey and one of the one of the words that emerged from repeat customers who have purchased three or more times around like, why do you keep coming back to Huron was exceed expectations and performance. And I think at the end of the day, that's like very gratifying and validating that yes, people are, are relating to the brand. They like the packaging X, Y, Z, but the products are delivering and then some. And I think that's super important to the overall, overall arithmetic of the brand. But to kind of circle back to your original question around, you know, how is this kind of changing folks for the better you know, look, we, we, we get emails, chats all the time around, you know, hey, I've, I've suffered from eczema for a really long time. Like I've never been able to find something that has worked well with my skin or I'm super sensitive to certain ingredients or maybe I'm super sensitive to fragrance. But for some reason, like your products really seem to work well with my skin, even though they do have fragrance, but it's like light enough, you know, X, Y, Z. And those are amazing to get. We have a CX channel on Slack. We share those wins kind of with the team all the time. But at the end of the day, like helping guys look and feel their best with maybe an emphasis on the latter, which, yes, this is a vain category. We all want to look our best. We all want to, you know, optically present ourselves and with the best foot forward. But to give someone just like an extra boost of confidence before they walk out of their house or apartment every day, whether it's to go crush a pitch or to have a really good first date or a number of other reasons, like that's really special. And to play just like a small role in that, um, again, that kind of harkens back to why we exist and is really to help guys help themselves. So it's continuing to bring A-plus products to the market with the intention of helping guys look and feel their best day in and day out has really been the mission since day one. Yeah, I think the first thing I come to is this, this idea of A-plus products. So it's there's no 
you can't stop innovating or bringing for to use a Twitter term the heat like that without for for customers because I mean in a market like today where we're having you know a bit of a downturn the only thing you have that's saving you is your brand and your product but if your brand is great and your product is like you said B minus but it's you know say a little bit higher price than maybe some alternative like people aren't going to stick with you and so having that be kind of a core ethos from the beginning i think is a really important thing because one thing we all hear right go just go test get feedback go test get feedback and so yes absolutely do that but also know that there is a cost to going and running those beta tests and a mass market rather than kind of a control group so first of all i think that's uh i think that's really great on the on the mission side the category you know it's funny i feel like it's um beauty in general uh, because of social, you know, social media platforms has been put in a really negative space. And if you really kind of drill it down to its core, it's a confidence category, right? So you see me right now, my hair is sticking out since the baby was born. I haven't had time, haven't made time to go get a haircut. I feel terrible. And so my wife making fun of me. She's like, I don't want to get my nails done. It's crazy that you want to get your hair done. I'm like, I'm freaking out. <laughs> so I keep like doing little clips, but I know that if I go with the the buzz, I'm going to just give myself a divot and it's going to be even worse. And so it is really confidence category. So I haven't, I've been wearing hats. I haven't done my hair because it's going to take too much product. And so I think it's really important to not look at it like it's a vain category, but just a, hey, I want to be able to stand up and feel good going out the door so I can deliver my best self to the world. And that's what I see. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, how we talk internally, it's, it's really about stacking small wins, right? Like, Day in and day out, you're not going to hit grand slams, right? You're not going to get a, a massive raise. You're not going to get some egregious promotion day after day, right? So how do you accomplish that same level of, of a dopamine hit of kind of like that feel of like, yeah, like today's been a great day. You're stacking small wins. And I think for us, like being that we're bathroom products, probably a lot of folks are showering in the morning. Like it's a great way to kick off a morning win, right? It's like feeling awesome, leaving the shower, like just made a great cup of coffee, had a great workout, like breakfast, like we're helping you start your day off with a win. And again, like that's, that all kind of like distills back to that original brand ethos around helping guys help themselves, stacking small wins, looking out for the guy in the mirror. Like a lot of these terms we've been using for the past three and a half years um, that we've really infused to kind of the infrastructure of the brand. Yeah, I love that. What? So you're talking about three and a half years doing this and infusing those those ethos into the company. What's been hard during that time that you didn't expect? Because there's a ton of things that are hard. You kind of go in with your eyes wide open. What's been difficult that you know you weren't ready for? Probably the the default option is probably a, a global pandemic. We had, you know, we, we had a bunch of partnerships lined up um, across the fitness front in gyms that immediately went to zero, right? Uh, not only were people not going to gyms because they weren't open, but people certainly weren't showering at said gyms. So that was, you know, that was a tough pill and kind of figuring out how to course correct. But look, constraints breed creativity, right? So you figure out how to take those learnings, those kind of curveballs, and make something of those, of those learnings. So for instance, for us, we had made a lot of jumbos, our jumbos for, for pumps, for gyms, that were just kind of sitting idle at our fulfillment center in early April of 2020 that were, again, originally earmarked for gyms. And we're like, you know, why don't we just put these on the site and figure out like what would happen? Like would, would people actually buy these like in a larger component style with a pump? 
Um, you know, we forecasted we had a number of months of inventory probably on hand. We sold out in eight days. So we're like, oh, interesting. That's a learning. So I think that's just one example of, look, there's going to be plenty of things that don't go your way, but it's how can you thoughtfully course correct in a way that you turn a mistake into a learning, right? Where in my, in my eyes, like a mistake is only a mistake if it's learned twice, right? So, so we are constantly running and we, we run into dead ends sometimes. Like that, that's totally normal. Like that's a startup and that's a learning. So we pivot and we figure out like, okay, postmortem, what happened? What can we learn from that? And then full speed ahead in a slightly different direction. If we were to make that same learning twice, that's why I view it as a mistake. So we try to minimize the mistakes and then make what we can of, of the learnings, uh, so long as they're not like massive learnings, right? But but you you course correct and you pivot um, and you continue to, to, to get back on course. Yeah, that's great. First of all, pretty amazing to see that, right? Like the pumps, people actually care about that kind of stuff. And I, I mean, that's, um, I'm sure, I know you guys are still selling those things. So that's a pretty incredible, pretty incredible learning to, to take there. I think that that idea, though, of every opportunity breeds a new opportunity, whether it's, you know, we learn something that we shouldn't do, or we learn something that we should do, you kind of can keep, you know, drilling down on those things and pivoting. I'm curious, kind of, based on those things, how do you framework wise generally break down problems? I think this is like a, it's a really interesting one because we're talking about that. How do you generally do that where you're able to say, distill the problem and then think through how I'm going to, how I'm going to make, you know, course correct. Yeah. I mean, I think you really have to distill things down the first principles, right? So it's like, what, what is the objective, like irrefutable start of this issue? Right. And then you kind of dissect from there, quite frankly, like, where did we zig, where we should have zagged. Um, but you really have to start at the core to kind of understand, wow, like our CPAs are rising through the roof. Like, okay, what's, what's the creative like? Do we feel like we have the right hooks? Like there's just so many things that people just want to default and kind of like broad brushstroke statements to say like, oh, X is like going out of control and we don't know why. I'm like, is that actually true? So I think for us, like before we make kind of those massive jumps in logic, it's, well, before we get to that conclusion, again, can we dissect these issues into smaller pieces to better understand, is there something that's actually in our control that we can adjust, that we can maneuver, um, that we can manipulate to see if we can actually get to a better outcome? So before we go from A to F, can we get to B, C, and D, and et cetera, et cetera, to see if we can actually impact or influence what we seem, you know, what we see is happening as a uh, as a potential issue or a problem. Um, so I, th- I think that's how we try and approach a lot of things, which is just again like before we make blanket arguments or or conclusions, it's really start to understand like what is at the root of the friction and how can we address that in a smaller scope. Thank you for bringing up first principles. It's the first time in over a dozen interviews where someone has brought it up internally. That is essentially what we do every single time. And so we'll correct each other. Everyone does this now. We've kind of trained everyone. So what, from first principles, how do we solve this problem? And essentially it is distill it down to its core. What do we have that we own that we can solve the problem with? And what are the kind of core components that allow us to do that? If there are things we need, let's go get them. But can we solve this problem 85, 90% with what we have now so that we can get going and then we can fill it in with the things that we need. But 
you have to kind of distill it down. I think what you just said is, is, is absolutely right. People make kind of like very, very bold faced decisions based on a few different kind of macro or you know, I, I guess like the, the surface level stuff and they don't drill down a mile deep to understand what that thing is that could kind of have a really, really outsized impact on solving a problem. So first of all, thank you for saying that. Huge. Yeah. What idea has changed the game for your business? So again, three and a half years working through COVID, what kind of changed everything for you guys? Or is maybe, maybe it's a few things that have kind of helped uh, move the needle. Probably the opportunity that sticks out the most is getting onto Amazon and even kind of taking a step back and being a little bit more holistic, but it's just looking beyond the constraints of direct to consumer, right? Uh, I mean, when I started my career in 2008 uh, as an early employee at Bonobos, like that was kind of the plan. It was a little bit contrarian at the time. And what we saw from kind of 2010 to 2014 was this mad rush of brands into the D2C ecosystem because you could own all the data and all these things. But as we've seen today, the customer journey is so varied, right? For each individual customer, you may see a Huron Instagram ad, then forget about it, then Google something, then see a paid search ad, then go to the site, forget about it, Google the brand again, then buy on Amazon, right? Like that that's one journey and there can be a bazillion others that are like it. So for us, we wanted to be in as many places as possible that made sense for us. We didn't want to feel like we were overextending our tentacles necessarily, but we wanted to feel like we could be in the places where our customers expected us to be. You know, for us, like we, we firmly believe that Huron can live on shelf one day, but we also want to make sure that we have the resources in terms of team, capital, et cetera, to execute on that from day one. Um, so that's not like an immediate term thing for us, but we view Amazon as a massive opportunity and it, and it has been for us. Um, Amazon became the most reliable retailer over the past two years because uh, obviously of so many shipping woes, but Amazon was still being delivered in two days, right? So, you know, for us, it's been a channel that we've turned to, that we've leaned into. Um, it's been a massive tailwind for us, quite frankly. And that may not be true for all businesses or brands or or, or whatnot, but but for us, it, it does make sense. We, we, we've chosen to lean in, but that, you know, if we were to quantify kind of like a game changer type opportunity for us, I, I would say it's been Amazon. What you said is, I think, a really salient point at the end, which is not every single thing that changes the game for one business works for someone else. But I think it's being open to, to, those, um, to those opportunities. One thing I find a lot of times is things like Amazon for a DTC business feel antithetical because it's like, well, this is not DTC. And it's like, dude, where are your customers at the end of the day? Oh, well, then you give margin on for Amazon. Okay. Or we could not get the customer and we have enough where we feel good enough about our models that it makes sense for us. And so I guess my call out from all of this is don't put yourself in a box. Understand that there are multiple places you can live and move quickly when you do have those things. Because like you said, it's been a massive tailwind for you. It's really, really, really smart. I've heard that from another plenty of other brands, by the way, as well. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I think this whole journey is about finding and discovering your brand specific cheat codes, right? Because I mean, even for a competitor brand in our category, like there are probably things that we do that wouldn't work for them and vice versa. But it's where do you feel like you have upside, a really strong grasp and great traction and hold on to those and run with those opportunities. And again, like those are probably more brand specific than you might think. 
So rather than kind of like the spray and pray approach for us, it's actually refining the scope to get bigger, which is like, hey, let's actually double down on like what's working for us and kind of emerging as a point of difference versus trying to tackle a bazillion other things, because that's what we view that like a lot of our competitors are doing. Uh, It's kind of the opposite mentality here, uh, where we, again, have kind of focused on things that we feel like we've made some pretty big jumps and just doubling down on those opportunities. So I think that's, I mean, that's hundred percent the right approach, especially like you said, for your business and what you guys are working on. Have you, do you ever have those kind of dark nights of the soul where you're like, are we doing the right thing? Is this, you know, we see these other people because we all fall into this, right? We see another company and we're like, I want to be like them or they're stealing our customers or something like that. And you say, I know they're doing these things that we have said we will not do. Should we do them? Yeah, for sure. And and all you have to do is open up Twitter, right? Uh, but tw- Twitter is kind of one big iceberg theory in play, right? Which is like 90% of the mass is below the surface and you can't really see what's going on. So what might be bright and shiny and rosy at one particular company, like maybe that's not really the case. So for us, like we don't have access to that information, nor, nor do I think, quite honestly, we really care. So for us, it's like, hey, let's just, again, focus on what seems to be working for us at this given day, week, month, et cetera, Focus on the strategy. You know, there, there's a there's a cool quote inside the walls of Amazon. Randomly enough, it's like uh, stubborn on the vision, flexible on the details, right? Whereas w- we know to whom we're trying to serve through X number of products on Y number of distribution channels. Let's execute on those versus trying to chase and grab straws at things that like we don't really feel that confident in, or that feels like we're stretching the team too thin and not you know, not coming from a, a position of strength. Yeah, I think that's uh, exactly right. It's funny. I just took this uh, brand positioning class at first round and essentially the entire thing was positioned around why do you exist as a company? And with that in mind, where are you supposed to like, where are the unique places that you can, only you can deliver value? Is it one or two things? It can't be five things. And just focus on those things. And essentially, since we did that and we focused on like that on the marketing and the GTM and everything, you see like it unlocks in people's brains internally, externally, and you start seeing kind of this really interesting rise in business and momentum that I don't think you can have when, you, um, when you're when you focused on 10 things where you should be focused on three. Essentially, you only have 100% of your energy if you're giving it to 10 things. Like it's only going to get 10% at best from you. I uh, I read recently that like, even the folks with the most intellectual capacity can juggle seven things at once, like seven thoughts, which seven even seems like a lot, right? So maybe for us mere mortals, that's like three to five. So when you actually think about like, actually think about three things and execute on them, it's a pretty finite uh, set of things to be focused on and, and attacking. So uh, yeah, for us, it's it's constantly about refining the the scope and really preaching focus. Yeah. Going on Amazon a little bit, because I think what you just said is a really, really interesting topic to think about in terms of focus. And I would love to hear more about, you know, your your past history thinking about this. Amazon doesn't allow VPs or kind of people who own divisions to have multiple divisions under them. It's like you have one project that you're working on and that's your focus and you need to win at that. You're not going to be the VP of growth, marketing, product, you know, these guys have like this whole surface area. I was at a company and this guy owned everything GTM belonged to this one VP. It's like, 
how is he able to think about all these things? Yeah, he had a lot of amazing directors and senior directors, but essentially, like, technically 500 people reported to him. That, is, that doesn't work. So I'm curious, because you obviously have a very specific vision on how you're, you're running here, and I'm sure that's based on also, you know, just constraints that you have. But what in your past informed the strategy or the thinking on how to run the business now? That's a really good question. You know, one, one of my friends and former colleagues from Chicago is Peter Rahal, who started RX Bar. And they're known for having like a militant focus where they got their start within the CrossFit community, right? It was a very small niche of very avid users who were focused on, you know, a better for you bar that was paleo that met these constraints. And they designed kind of everything for that community. And I think kind of, again, and this kind of cycles back to what we started with, just really understanding like at an insanely intimate level who your customer is, why he or she is shopping from you in the first place, how do they get there? Those are things that we're just constantly focusing on. Uh, we launch surveys at minimum twice a quarter um, to our existing base. We break it up based on purchase behavior. So we have, we always have a VIP survey. Um, we have a first time customer survey. We have a churn survey. Like we're on, we're constantly trying to figure out data points. Why'd you come back to us? Like, what are the points you love? Like, is there a reason why you didn't come back in a few months? Always looking for ways to improve. But I think it's the brands that have that kind of maniacal sense of quantitative analysis around customer feedback and understanding why people are choosing your brand and voting with their wallets is just insanely important. And I, you know, I chat with a lot of early stage founders and they're like, you know, how, how do you think about building community and how do you get like raving fans? And just like, show me care, like open the kimono, like build a little, like tell them about things you're facing, like give them early access to stuff, talking about wins. We've started doing a monthly email recap that's been insane for us. Like all we do is bullet point out like the five to seven things that happened in the month probably five of the seven are things that would never see the light of the public sphere, right? But people feel like they're now a part of the brand. They get a little insider info. Like I have this this thesis that so many people want to be a founder, want to start their own thing, but for whatever reason, like it's just not in the cards. Just had a kid, just got married, just got promoted. Like, and those are totally fine. But if you, if, if Huron can be the outlet for that entrepreneurial zest or passion because we're sharing a little bit more with them and they feel like they're a part of the brand, they're not buying face wash from Huron, they're buying Huron, you know, that's something that we're really kind of striving for. It's, so it's, we're constantly in, in comms with our customers. Um, we do phone calls. We do like phone interviews all the time because those things are fun and they're hard. People don't like doing hard or time consuming. It's like, hey, can I find a VA to do this, to do that, so I can save time? That's all fantastic, and we live in a very efficient world. But sometimes the seemingly inefficient things give you the highest ROI on your time. So for us in these earlier stages and earlier years, we're really thinking about how can we craft this insanely loyal audience by showing, quite frankly, we just care. Like, we want the input. We want your feedback. And that your feedback will actually shape the trajectory of this brand. And I think it's some of those early learnings that that have set us on a, a really explosive path that we've been super excited about. Thank you. That was uh, epic. For people who can't see my face, I'm very like gobsmacked in the right way, which is very rarely 
and I've been seeing this more and more with you know the standout founders I'm I'm lucky enough to talk to, um, which is this voracious appetite to actually hear what the customer has to say and commune with them because they are them. And I think um, we all, by the way, we all learn this hyper efficiency thing, right? We want to get as much done as we possibly can, and the more you essentially seed control like your control of 10 things and just say these are the three things we're going to do and we're going to be exceptional at them we're going to make a great product we're going to find you know service great customers and we're going to like have an exceptional brand and brand voice it's like okay those three things done now we can go and do all the subset things that that kind of play into that and so you said one thing about you know focusing on the data that is coming in from those qualitative surveys and i think not enough people synthesize both things simultaneously, which is you have people, and I say this a lot, so forgive the audience uh, that they've heard me say this before, but every person behind your data point is having a life experience and they are having a unique experience and you as the brand are lucky enough to be a part of it. And so you need to understand how you can do something that services them. So for instance, you have your regular emails that are going out. I'm sure you guys do SMS. Each one of those things is a way to communicate with them that might reach one person differently than another person. So you have to be very thoughtful about each thing, right? That email, I would love to know the data around how many people are replying to that. What's kind of the, like, what are the, the learnings from that? Because that is essentially a tech thing. You go and you give an update on like how things are going. And it's like a product launch thing. Um, hey, we launched these features. This is what we're dealing with. But I think you almost are going even deeper with it, which is like, hey, we're all human beings. Here's what's going on. Um, really excited about this. These are the things we're learning. And I think that's um, super impactful. Um, more than ever, people want to feel like they're part of the community. And we had a chat with, um, with a guy who helps big brands understand their audiences better. And his big thesis is the next wave of D2C is going to be focused on niche audiences. And those niche audiences are predicated on you giving people an experience that is specific to them. And so you're absolutely talking about that language right now. So I guess what has been some of the tools that you've used? Obviously, you're sending out surveys. Are there any post-purchase surveys or what kind of things are you doing like through your own acquisition funnel or retention funnel to be able to pull those things in regularly besides those quarterly or twice quarterly surveys you're doing? Yeah, um, really good question. I think we're kind of like upping our own ante a bit on A, doing it more regularly and B, with a little bit more thoughtfulness and intention. I mean, right now, uh, our director of retention, Johnny, he onboards all of our new community members on a quarterly basis, but he's such a good internet sleuther. Like he'll like do background and make sure like, okay, this person isn't at this company and da, da. like we've had two or three brands that have ordered from us 10 to 12 times to just do product research, which is like, I've also hand delivered to two of those brands um, with like notes, um, which was kind of funny, all in, all in good fun, right? But anyways, like, so that that's kind of like a big quarterly lift, but starting to implement more post-purchase surveys is kind of like a, a point of immediacy and starting that feedback and collection cycle. But the other thing to balance that is, is like, we are getting something with that information. What are we giving so that this is a, a balanced process? Like we don't like being transactional. You just transacted. Like we're super grateful for that. The last thing we need to do is interrogate you with 14 questions around 
what's your height and weight? And like, how do you figure out about us? And like, what's your social security number? Like, that's not the relationship or the bond that we want to cultivate 0.3 seconds after you just bought from us. So it's how do we frame the copy? So it's like, we're here to provide you with tips. We're like, help us get better and acquiring amazing customers like yourself. Like there's a lot of off the shelf type stuff that I think we in the D2C ecosystem vacuum, um, we just assume like, oh, like that's totally normal. But if you're buying from one of these brands for the first time, they're like, it's a weird question, right? So again, it's a every decision tree moment, every juncture, it's like, how do we kind of like reshape this question? How do we massage this? So it feels like this is a much more uh, relationship building initiative versus like a data extraction initiative, which I think a lot of these tools can kind of be misconstrued as. I think that's uh, like a salient point because we all are so we're all trying to pull as much data as possible, right? We want to understand people. We want to understand how to build systems to be able to service the more and more people. This point of a business is to grow it, right? And so I think the the really like important thing that you just said there is not every single thing should be used. Like you need to know what tools to use in what situation, right? Like a, a craftsman's not going to come into your house put up a painting and uh, they're going to use, I don't know, they're going to use a saw to put the nail in. They're going to use a hammer to put that nail in the wall. If there's not a stud, they're going to put something else in there to mimic using the stud. Like there are certain tools to use for every situation. And so I was talking to someone who's in the female beauty space and they talked about how they're doing a survey up front, but it's to make sure that they serve the people the right products. And it's been bananas for them. I guess my question to you is, is, Men are different than women, right? There's a different psychology in terms of the way that we purchase, right? And so have you guys had to learn to think differently or has it been easier for you because you're essentially selling to yourself where you say like, well, that would be annoying. I don't want friction at the beginning, but I'm willing to, once I like something, talk to them forever and become like, for, for lack of a more technical term, homies with the brand. It's a good question. I mean, I think there are elements of both, but I think one thing that's important to remember is Yes, I feel like I was that customer seven to 10 years ago. I'm also an N of one, right? Like we have a lot of customers. So there's going to be a lot of vantage points. And we talk about that a lot internally where it's like, we'll come to a conclusion and be like, hey, N of five, like toss it out in the community. Like, let's take a survey, figure it out. Because if we can get 900 data points back, that's certainly going to trump the five that we have in this office. So there's this um, collaborative understanding around like deferring to the masses, the masses being the folks who again have like voted with their wallets to be here on customers. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis put on that. But yeah, I mean, but but to get there, like we're testing things all the time. And whether it's a a quiz feature, which we've looked at, which I think we'll start to explore a bit. But again, it's it's less around like, great, can we get your birthday? And can we get this? And can we get that? It's like, hey, like, let's help you figure out which scent you might like. Or would this be a good product for you or not? Because of, you know, if you're sensitive to fragrance, like this has fragrance in it. So it's like probably not going to be a great fit. Like we'd rather combat that right off the get-go versus having you purchase the product and have a negative product experience because you found out about something too late that we could have, you know, we could have introduced to you or articulated to you before the purchase to kind of, again, like develop a little bit of trust or whatnot. So I think I think there are multiple opportunities that that we can do a better job of kind of pre-communicating with, with a potential customer to kickstart that flywheel of trust, integrity, relatability, things we preach a lot 
here uh, internally on the team. Yeah, that's great. So one thing you guys have as a feature, which I, I am subscribed to two of them, is uh, is you have subscriptions with the with the products. And so I know that's not always going to be something where it's a first order thing for a customer. How often do you guys see people like within you know a few days of using the product once they've received it, opting into something like that, or when they need to get a renewal, opting into something like that? Is it a high? Is it a pretty high percentage? It is. It is, which has been awesome. And that's, we put more emphasis on subscription over the past few months. You know, coming out of the gates, I had a hot take on subscription and I was totally wrong, which was I didn't even want to introduce subscription because I felt that in 2020 at the time, 2022 now, probably even more so, people have too many subscriptions, right? Like they don't want a Netflix subscription and a Spotify subscription. And a face wash subscription, right? Like just like let people buy when they want to buy. What we realized though is like this is a product that folks use every day. So there is a usage and throughput period of time where rather than shaping it as a cost center, it's more of a convenience play, right? It's like, hey, like let's make sure you don't run out. Or if you got too much, great. Like let's pause next month's order so you don't have too much under the sink. Like we don't want that to happen. So we try and approach it from a very, again, like down to earth, familiar, kind of laid back perspective where we're really preaching convenience, not ARR. Because again, for us, this is like, this is a category that this customer has shopped on autopilot for 20 years. So if we're fortunate to get he or she across the finish line, like this could be a really sticky customer for us. The last thing that we want to do is try and like, get them into like one more subscription in month three and then they turn and then they're done, right? Like we want them for the next decade. So how do we create those upfront relationships? So again, they feel like they're not just buying face wash, they're buying Huron face wash because they're a part of the brand. You do that by not solving for ARR, maybe right out of the gates, but certainly making up for it in the long run. So I think that's kind of like the delicate balance of subscription, which in our category is a little hard. Are you super heavy handed? Is a jumbo body wash being used by five people in your house or just you, right? So we don't want to miss that window of opportunity, but we don't want to send you way too much product that you're not yet ready to receive. So we're constantly trying to figure out, like, protect the downside, make sure we're over communicating around when this um, shipment's going to ship. No surprises. Like, if you need to cancel, that button's clearly labeled in the email. If you need to skip, that button's clearly labeled in the email. Um, We want to make sure that the user experience is, again, really, really strong. Yeah, I love that kind of every single decision that you guys make and how you think about things kind of distills down to at the core, we want to make an exceptional product that services customers and we're going to let that flow through the the customer experience as well. I think it's like super important to kind of continuously use that as a North Star and also something that's very grounding for the brand and the company. So it's really great. I have a few more, a few more questions. This one will close up this one. So you talked about Amazon and, and focusing uh, on D 2 C and Amazon and, and being really rigorous about where your product is going to be and delivering like an exceptional experience for the customer there. What's your guys' big idea about where the business goes next? Is it products? Is it moving into new categories? Like wh- where do you guys think uh, the business is going to go? Yeah, definitely into both of those. Um, we have some new products in the hopper for later this year, which we're super excited about. You know, a small side kind of get, uh, circling back to the conversation in and around speaking with your customers. I think we pulled 50 of our customers in our community and actually sent them product. And then we did phone interviews with them like, 
here's how you should be thinking about this product. Like we'd love to hear your feedback. And it was, it was an awesome experience and people were so fired up about it. So we're, we're, we're really excited about some of the products that we have in the pipeline for later this year. And then just kind of thinking about distribution. Look, when the distribution, I think for me is kind of the intersection of like timing and intentionality. I just kind of made that up. So hopefully that makes sense. But being that like, you don't limp into a major retailer, right? It's like, no, we're sprinting and we have got the resources and we know the game plan and we're here to execute. And we're going to execute in the first 90 days because that's when it's most important. It's not something we're just like, oh, like, yeah, sure. Like, let's turn on 2,400 doors. That's not a light switch type uh, decision that you just like randomly decide to flick. Um, It's something that requires a lot of thought, a lot of intentionality, and quite honestly, the right partner too. So for, I mean, we're having conversations, we're understanding like where we think the brand could live. But in the meantime, we are super excited about the momentum that we've built for ourselves on the D2C side and on the Amazon side. That's great. Yeah, I think, uh, well, we're going to have to coin that. That's going to be the, uh, the the mat formula that we uh, that we put in the article when we when we post this one. This is great. I'm going to go into the, to the last the last bit, which I, I started calling them rapid fire. And I, I'm not a rapid fire person. So they're just like philosophical questions that close off that aren't as business related. So w- one thing I think about a lot is the, the co-founder relationship. And you talked at the top of, with your co-founder how he is like a product expert. He's formulation. He kind of wrote the book essentially on how to think about skin that people reference. And how do you give advice to people who are thinking about starting a company? I've heard a lot of different thought processes around how you choose your co-founder, make sure they don't have any like overlap with you on what you do. And I wonder, is it a skills thing or is it a like a temperament thing where you know that we'll be able to go through just the shit together. What do you think about when you talk to people about that? Yeah, I think what's worked really well with Matt and I is this notion of kind of like shared vision, different path to get there, meaning like our skill sets are completely complementary, which has been fantastic. And the relationships that I've seen that maybe haven't gone extremely well, it's oftentimes when the skill sets are very, very similar. And one person's like trying to lead another area of the business as a way to like step out of the other person's way, as a way to like diversify as a co-foundership where things get like a little uneasy. So for us, it's always been about, again, providing 12 out of 10 A plus products for the guy consumer who's like trying to figure it out. Matt's written a book on it from a product formulation, product marketing standpoint. I've kind of like lived the story in terms of a consumer standpoint figuring out how to tinker around, been involved in kind of earlier stage businesses. So I think our skill sets are like amazingly complementary of one another, such that we understand like, great, we're running in parallel paths and like, here's what you're attacking, here's what I'm attacking. Where do we need to hire to build out the team to kind of add some strength there? And I think that's been really, really helpful for the two of us. Uh, And we haven't really stepped on each other's toes because there is that kind of like mutual understanding of like, here are the things that I'm attacking, here are the things that you're attacking. But at the end of the day, here's who we're attacking for. And there's never any uncertainty or confusion around who that's for. Yeah. That was not rapid fire. No, I I don't do rapid fire. That's uh, everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. My wife's literally like, you are the most long-winded person in the history of the world. Where do you get your best ideas? I think this is always really fascinating. Like, is it running, shower, in the car? I am a runner. That's a really good outlet for me. Uh, 
I always thought people who didn't listen to music when they were running were absolute psychos, but I've like found myself to be that person because I like, there's just a bazillion things going in between my ears. Um, so that's been like a really interesting creative outlet for me. It's also the one hour ish a day that is just like, you can just kind of go and be outside and let your mind go wild. Uh, so I'd probably say like, that's probably where, um, I'm thinking about the most stuff let's call it. Yeah. It's funny. The, uh, the running without working out without music is actually kind of a strange cheat code. Um, you don't think about it, even lifting weights, you know, you want to listen to death metal or something that's going to pump you up, Yeah. but also you stop and you're like, Oh wow, there's like a lot of interesting things going on at this moment. So I, I definitely kind of push towards the no music. I do that by the way, in the car also, I'll just drive in silence. My wife was like, you're weird. What are you doing? Uh, you don't play any music. I'm like, it just, I can think it's like this, you know, this little sound. Yeah. Just whatever the outlet is. Totally. What skill do you feel like has served you best in life? Without sounding self-promotional, I guess. Um, I think for me, just like work ethic, like I was never the biggest kid, never the fastest kid. I was never the strongest kid, the smartest, but I wanted to be better than all of those people. So I was always working out before school, running before school, running after school, working out after school, like studying until I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. That was just my way of kind of like feeling like I could compete with all of those folks. And I think, again, that's kind of a, it's kind of like an athlete's mindset to some extent, but feel like it has served me well in this type of ecosystem that is so fast paced, that is constantly changing directions, where you're course correcting, where you're on a team that's kind of stuck with me. So, you know, that's probably what I would say. Oh, that's great. And then second to last is, uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I don't know about best piece of advice, but I can tell you my favorite piece of advice. So I have a mentor as a former, very decorated Navy SEAL. Um, I remember asking him, maybe like a decade ago, basically I asked like, why are the SEALs so good? He's like, Oh, easy. We don't pick a fair fight. He's like, we launch all of our missions in the freezing rain or at three in the morning when people wouldn't expect us to. And I think there's actually a lot of business similarities that that applies to, right? Which is just like, if you're constantly doing what everyone else is doing, if you're constantly releasing the same thing that everyone else is releasing, like, how are you separating yourself from the masses? And I think that's something that's like always stuck with me, which is just like, how can we not pick a fair fight? At the end of the day, a lot of the brands, whether in our competitive set or not, we're using similar tech stacks. We're using similar creative agencies. We're doing X, we're doing Y. Are we starting to all look and feel the same? Like, let's make sure that's not the case. So I think that, that that's just something that, again, has always kind of stuck with me. And I, I just obviously appreciate where it's coming from, but have found there to be a lot of parallels in the startup world as well. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's spectacular. Um, I, I talk to people a lot about what are the moats of your business? And like, those are the unfair advantages that keep you safe. And that is absolutely, we all use the same, essentially the same products. Our brands, other brands that are in your competitive set using pencil, absolutely. Are they using it the way you are? Uh, are, are other brands doing, you know, using Gorgeous or something like that? Yes, absolutely they are. There's thousands of brands doing it. Are they using it the way you are? And it's, it's important to kind of, that centers back around what you've talked about this entire time, which is, we know our customer really well. We have a great product and we know how we're going to communicate with them. Now we can go do something that is unique specifically to us. So the last question, if say you met you 10 years ago, 
what would you tell yourself about this entire process that maybe someone you weren't able to get out of someone else? I'd still probably be too uh, indecisive to follow my own advice, but be the voice of yes. And what I mean by that is kind of um, kind of discuss this a little bit in our community conversation, but there's going to be a bazillion reasons why starting a company is not the right move right now, right? It's job, personal, family, money, X, Y, Z. The timing is never right. It's never right. Like you could always do one more iteration on product. You could always do one more turn of the brand book. You could always spend a little bit more time working on creative, like just go. Um, And I think I quite honestly, like, waited a little bit because I was like, I wasn't sure I was doing some consulting work. I was like, ah, oh, I don't know. Da, da. And I wasted probably six months just being like very indecisive. Now it's a huge leap for sure for anyone. But I think for me personally, it's been the most worthwhile experience. I've learned so much in a very short period of time. And I feel way more capable of doing any of the jobs that I've had previously, just having done this for a few years it's amazing how much you learn in such such a short period of time. So I think my sound advice to myself five years ago would, would just be to, to just do it, to just go. Uh, I, I don't want to say just do it. Cause that sounds like a weird Nike uh, terminology cause it is. Uh, but, but to be the voice of yes and just get started. Well, that is an amazing way to, a way to close this off. Uh, Matt, people are so lucky how open you are to share things both here on Twitter, et cetera. So I really appreciate your time. How should people reach out to you or, or keep, um, keep following what you're, what you're doing at Huron? Yeah, I appreciate that, Jace. Um, Twitter is honestly probably the, the best bet. I think we've all kind of turned our back on LinkedIn by now. So I, I tend to be pretty observant on Twitter. Like I log on a lot. I follow a lot of folks, read a lot of folks. Um, but I've really enjoyed kind of leaning in and engaging with folks and getting to know people on a, a much better level like yourself. Uh, over the past few months. So that, that's probably the best. Uh, cool. Well, we'll, we'll include uh, a link to your Twitter in the show notes. Uh, thanks again. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Chase. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ad Creative from Pencil. We hope you enjoyed our chat and learned a thing or two that can help you grow your business and think more creatively. If you have someone you think we should interview, just hit me up on Twitter. Also a small favor. If you could please share and review this, we want our guests' amazing insights to reach as much of the community as possible. And your ratings help. Till next time, add some creativity into your life. Thanks.